0: Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to MedTech Speed to Data. I'm your host, Andy Rogers from KeyTech. Today, episode 23, we have James Domini, CTO from Avail Med Systems. James, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Andy. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, really excited to have you on. We've had a few uh, prior guests with products that 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 are in the operating room, but yours is on a whole other level of intelligence. So I'm really excited to get into it, understand kind of the story behind it, um, and and uh, you know your plans going forward. But you know, with most of our guests, I like to get get started uh, with a little bit more of the personal side. So James, you're you know your CTO, you're responsible for this platform. Just kind of curious your your background and how you sort of made the decision to, to work uh, for this uh, surgical telepresence company here at Avail.
1: That's a fun story. So, you know, I've been, uh, I've been in technology in one fashion or another for, for all of my career, which I'm not gonna number the, the decades. Yes, it's been, it's been a while. But, uh, but this is the first time that I've been involved in medtech. I came to Avail not quite two years ago. Um so it 's been a really interesting two years, but this is the first time i 've been in the med tech space in the healthcare space at all in in any way shape or form i I did a bunch of other stuff I kind of started really low in in the technology stack and I worked on um, optical communications and worked my way up to you know i p networking and worked my way up to software and i 've been you know kind of stuck with with general software uh, up until avail, which has been fun but Avail's my first mid-tech gig. Got it. And so, so
0: why did you make that switch from you know, classic tech, you know, Silicon Valley type tech, uh, TiVo, I think is where you were, which is super cool. We can talk about that offline. Um, you know, why did you take this opportunity? We'll look at it that way.
1: Yeah. So it really started with a conversation with Daniel Hawkins. And Daniel's our CEO and founder here at Avail Med Systems. Anyone who knows Daniel knows he's an amazing storyteller. And he painted such a compelling picture of the impact that, that Avail Med Systems will have on the healthcare industry and how that can help patient outcomes, you know, that I, I just had to come here. Um, you know, I, I really didn't know anything about the surgical world. You know, Daniel started explaining how things happen in, tip, in today's typical operating and, and procedure rooms, and it, it just blew me away. Like we have such an opportunity to completely eliminate the physical boundaries that have constrained collaboration, that have constrained the, you know, the, the way procedures are, are run and we can change all that. And so like that, that just as an opportunity was, was hugely exciting. And then I was like, okay, so, so how do I think I fit in here? And I really want to bring my own experience. Um, you know, my, my experience with innovation on pace of evolution and bring that to the med tech industry, because I think, I think I can make a big difference here. I think as an individual, I can bring Silicon Valley mindset on products, on engineering to an industry that's, you know, historically been a little more conservative.
0: When I was preparing for this interview, I mean, the thought that came to mind to me was, you know, the consumerization of healthcare and you know, granted, this isn't like an in-home product, maybe right now, but you know, the, the idea of like your background in sort of tech and streaming in the home environment and the digital experience, and translating that consumer experience as well to you know to the operating room, I think uh, is is a common theme in in our industry, and it's it's great to kind of um, talk to you today about this story. So let's get into Our audience is dying to know what the heck is Avail Med Systems and what are these? What is this? uh, surgical telepresence company all about. And, you know, there's the, the, the phrase advanced technology breakthrough simplicity. I thought it was a great slogan, you know, on your homepage, you made have come up with that, but the idea of like making uh, complex technologies really easy and intuitive to use is, you know, I think what a lot of people out there are striving to do. So, so walk, walk our audience through the avail system.
1: Sure. Love to. Um, I love talking about our product. Uh, you know, Avail is, uh, let me start at a high level. It's a complete hardware and software telepresence system. Uh, and we might want to put a pin in that and come back to what does telepresence mean. But, you know, it's a telepresence system and it, it connects human expertise and it connects digital tools inside and outside of the operating room. Okay. When you're connected with Avail, parties outside the operating room feel like they're present alongside the, the surgical care team. And we do that with remotely controlled, high-definition cameras, two-way audio. You know, we stream both that that camera views as well as other surgical imaging. And we've got collaboration tools like telestration and freeze frame. So someone outside really feels like they're in the operating room. Like, that's the high level. Who needs to view this on the outside?
0: Like, if, if someone's being operated on, I imagine they're right there at the bedside. So So who is...
1: Teleporting, if you will, into into the OR. That's what I had to learn about. You know, it turns out that in today's operating room, there can be a whole host of parties. So there's always the surgeon or the interventionalist uh, that is that is running the procedure. And we, in no way, shape, or form, are changing that. The surgeon is in control, and they are physically in the room along with the rest of the surgical team, the nurses, the scrub nurse, the rotators, et cetera. And so they're always going to be there. What I didn't realize is that there could be clinical specialists from a device company. There could be sales reps from a device company. There could be additional physicians that are there to monitor, to proctor. There could be physicians there. There could be fellows there that are watching and and learning. There could be residents. There could be any number of people. And so our aim is to say, okay, how can we Allow those people the same sort of experience, or, or potentially even a better experience without physically having to be in the room. And that is what we call surgical telepresence. So all those people who are not the ones who are directly hands-on, they can be remote and yet still actively participating, not passively just watching a screen, but actively participating alongside. And what happens is as they're actively participating, they're, they're, they're controlling their own view. And they they get to choose what they see through the cameras or the different imagery imaging modalities that are connected to the available console. And by doing that, that's that's a much more active participation. They're also sharing what they want to see onto the big screen that we have in that procedure room. So now what they can do is they could be guiding the physician or providing some expertise to the physician if they need to. They can be saying, hey, you may want to look here and they can annotate on the screen, and that can show up on the big screen we've got in the surgical room so they can uh, uh, so that they can guide, if necessary, or answer questions. Sometimes they're not actually even doing that for the physician itself. Sometimes it might be a rep trying to help the scrub tech on the back table be ready for the next step that the surgeon's going to do, right? There's an increasing amount of pressure. On surgical staff, even outside of the surgeons themselves, on on the nursing staff, and it's hard for them to keep track of everything that needs to happen. Sometimes, right? And there's there can be more and more turnover. We've seen that 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 that's been very difficult through the pandemic to uh, keep people engaged. And there's been a lot of burnout. So as you get new people in, maybe there's a need to help guide the person on the scrub table who's providing that next instrument to the
0: to the surgeon who's actually operating. That's really helpful. I guess just as you were talking, I'm I'm curious. You know, I, I, what, we are, we're, we're a medical device design company here at KeyTech, and, like, you always have to be sort of, like, single fault safe. So internet goes down, but you have someone who's, you know, the world-renowned expert in some cardiovascular procedure saying, you need to do this. And remember, don't go – got to go and, – and if the, the, the signal goes out, now you're in the operating room. Now you're kind of on your own. I guess I'm just, what are the rules of the engagement there? Like, you know, from, from a device perspective, the device has to, to work when things go wrong. But from a procedural perspective, if your, your, your advisor, you know, cuts out, uh, you know, I guess what are the rules there?
1: It's a really uh, challenging uh, question. And so what I'd say right now is that surgeon who's in the room, at the end of the day, is ultimately responsible. They they always have been ultimately responsible. They always, I anticipate, will be ultimately responsible. We're not changing that. We're not trying to take away any authority uh, from that surgical team that's in the procedure room. So so that that's really the ultimate fail-safe to anything we have is you're no worse off than you were before. Now, we don't want to be that. We want to be, we want to enable more than that. And so uh, we certainly build a redundant system and a very reliable system. And in fact, you know, we, we've put really great features into this platform, but we've equally focused on reliability of the system. So, you know, we're we're tolerant to power going out. We've got battery backup, et cetera. You know, we build this thing so that we are... Um, Reliable from component failure, et cetera, so you know that goes into the design the a good design of a device um, and that's definitely there um, but at the end of the day, it has been and and will continue to be the the surgeon who is the owner of what is happening in the room that, that makes sense uh,
0: is there a particular I don't know killer app or you know target market you know for this product. Like, the, are there certain procedures that lend themselves more to this sort of external advisor and in operating room uh, advising the in operating room team, or is it just any surgical procedure? So I imagine you got to pay for the use, right? So
1: yeah, I mean, actually, actually that is kind of cool about the business model. Um, I, I can't claim any ownership of the business model in any way, shape, or form. But it is pretty cool. This is not sold as a piece of capital equipment. This is sold as more of a, a SaaS type platform or a software type platform, where you know it's it's use that generates the revenue for us and that that pays for the system. Um, the you know the the question as to what is you know what are we best suited to? You know that that's really evolved over time. Uh, I I'm going to stand here and of course say everything. Every procedure needs an avail console and must be supported remotely. No, uh, I I actually do think that where we are today, and I'm going to give you a software analogy in just a second. Where we are today is just at the infancy of how this can be used. Where we are today, we are supporting you know the the, the physicians that are that are performing procedures get support occasionally for their uh for their activities. And my personal bias says why doesn't every surgical procedure intervention have support? Why isn't there collaboration on every single time someone is doing something? I'll give you the software example and why why I think that. If you go back 30 years in software development, um People wrote code, they checked it in, hopefully it all worked together, got tested, etc. We've come a long way in 30 years. Um, and one of those things that happens now, and this is just standard practice, anytime any software engineer today writes a line of code, unless they're uh, at a startup that they are the sole engineer, it gets into a, a system where it gets peer-reviewed. Nothing gets into your main code base without getting peer reviewed. Every single line of code gets peer reviewed. It's a check, right? I, we use GitLab. Other people use GitHub. There's all sorts of different tools. There are automated review processes. Nothing gets through without review. That's collaboration. Okay. And then of course, after that review, there's also automated testing, et cetera. Lots, lots of great stuff that goes on. I think about that and I think, okay, so how do we take that sort of model into the procedure room? Why does a a physician have to work on their own when they fundamentally don't have to. And I, that was actually one of the questions I had when I first came into this. Do surgeons want help.
0: Do they want that person, you know, do they want it recorded? And do they, you know, do they want someone looking over their shoulder? I, I would say maybe half don't. And then the younger half do, maybe.
1: <laughs> I think there, there may be some generational differences. Uh, certainly... You know, collaboration is more and more common as as we've as we've grown up with it. Uh, but that was one of the first questions I had for Daniel and and I probed on a few other people. And I've got some some friends who are physicians. Will a surgeon want someone looking over their shoulder? And and by and large, the answer is yeah. And it's not because they want someone looking over their shoulder. It's not someone to say, oh, you you made a mistake. It's well, crap, if I get into a situation, and I I probably won't. But if I do get into a situation where I haven't seen this before, or I just want to phone a friend, I just want that safety blanket. And it's a fantastic safety blanket to have. Now, that's just one of the use cases, though. Supporting the physician in the room is just one of the use cases that we've got. Um, The other is actually the physician broadcasting out and educating people outside of the room. And so that's a medical education or clinical education use case. And, and that's certainly also one of the things we, uh, we are used for. What we found is time has evolved, right? As I kind of said we, we've seen some of the use cases change over time, where it started with um, medical education was a clear one, uh, that physician support started to become more and more uh, prevalent when COVID hit. And operating rooms actually got locked down and the, the hospitals were not allowing anyone else into the operating room. And the physicians were like, but but I, I like device rep who helping, you know, just being there for me or being there for my nursing staff. Uh, so th- that took off during COVID. Now we're starting to see this change and people are thinking more broadly about how can they use this technology in other ways? So we've got some uh, leading Medical device companies who are very forward-thinking and saying, "Hey, I can use this throughout the product design lifecycle, from the very beginning of product conception, where I'm trying to analyze what the problem is, to early designs, and I can I can test those with uh, physicians, and this can really speed up device product design because I now don't have to wait for the availability of flying one person from the development team to a A hospital or the the one surgeon who's willing to do it to try something new or to answer my questions, and I can actually bring my entire development team virtually into the room with the physician who's either having the problem that we 're trying to solve or who's got the early early phase device so that's really cool
0: yeah, you can really scale um, education um, feedback for your product design. Um, and then, of course, just advising procedures and, and assuming you're, you're driving towards better, better outcomes, right?
1: I, I was going to say, there, there's kind of two, two angles, right? There's absolutely we want to drive better outcomes. I also, and, and this was part of Daniel's initial vision, we can also drive faster product design cycles because we can be that much more efficient. We can speed that initial investigation. We can speed the clinical trials. We can speed the rep training and then we get into physician assistance. So all that can happen much more quickly.
0: I saw recently there was a partnership with uh, Medtronic. Is,
1: is that what, um, you know, that partnership is all about? Medtronic Neurovascular is, is who our partnership is with. Um, and, and they've come into this, you know, in a, in a very innovative and, and forward-thinking way. Um, they're really looking at, at us as, they really wanna leverage technology and we're part of that to advance stroke care. And I, I love that mission. Um, they created this program, they call it the remote connectivity program, the RCP, and they created this program to spend more time with their customers. Now that time could be back to what I was saying, could be product support or product training. It could be for R and D purposes. Like they, they saw that opportunity. Um, the program also offers a second point, which it allows, uh, their physician customers to use the available platform for collaboration with themselves within the community. And certainly neurovascular, you know, that specialty, those physicians that I've been exposed to, they love collaborating. They love sharing knowledge. They love sharing stories. They love training each other, learning from each other, because there's, there's just so much to do here.
0: Got it. Yeah. I want to come back to, you know, the, the vision of ultimately digitizing, you know, the operating room. That's, I imagine, you know, part of your mission, but Um, let's, let's take a a step back here for a second and, um, you know, talk about your product and, you know, you've been with avail for, you know, 18 months or two years, something along those lines. And, um, I want to understand, you know, how the product has evolved, uh, over time. And, you know, the name of the podcast is speed to data, right? So what data are you looking for, um, to inform, you know, these, I guess, new releases of the product um, and, and, and informing how it, it evolved, has evolved and will evolve over time. What data are you looking for?
1: So number one, and this is, this is kind of where I come from, we want to take a, uh, a technology, a, a Silicon Valley approach to evolving the product. Um, the, the product is constantly evolving, right? Um, what we want to do, though, in terms of you know, how do we evolve We want to make sure everything we do is driving towards a uh, a benefit to an improvement in the way our product is used. Um, So, I've got some history. So, I, I my background I've I've spent roughly equal times on the engineering side and on the product management side. So, it's kind of fun. When I've done that, I you know part of my product management stint was in the early 2000s in the networking space. And what we did there when we were trying to figure out what to do. It was a feature race. Like, that's what it was. It was who can follow up and implement the latest IETF the Internet Engineering Task Force, the latest draft, which was the standards. Like, we, we never actually waited for anything to become a standard. It was always an IETF draft, and we're, we're just getting to the next version and the next version. And how can we add more and more features? And how can we add more ports and more feeds and speeds? And so. it was all about that spec sheet. Was that to keep up with competition or just grow your market? It was. Keep up with competition. I mean, back in those days, Cisco was the 800-pound gorilla, and they're still pretty big today. Uh, but there were there were a lot of startups of networking startups, and a number of them got bought by Cisco or by Cisco competitors. Uh, we got bought. The the company I was got uh, a part of got bought. It was very much about keep up with competitors, and it was not back in those days. It was not as fin- I was certainly not as finessed in terms of why are we doing this. And the key question isn't what's on the spec sheet, or what is my competition doing? The real key question is, how am I going to be used? And how can I fit into that? And that's really one of the disciplines that uh, we've been working on here at Avail Med Systems. right? So the data we want, so for instance, um, when we first started out, we started throwing some features against the wall. We developed some features, and we'd take them out to uh, our user community, and we'd say, here, let's try this, okay? We had some misses. We had some places where we developed a feature and it was like, no one used it, or it was not developed in the right way. And so over the past two years, we've, we've switched our approach. So for instance, the data I'm looking for, I actually, uh, we do a lot of, of UI design work ahead of coding anything. And we'll take that UI design work and we'll go test it as a UI design. And we'll test it with users. We'll do user testing without an actual product behind it. And you can easily build this stuff out very quickly so that therefore my iteration cycle on changes to the user interface has gotten much quicker. And the benefit, the designs we actually end up coding, we know are going to be used. And that has contributed. I will say, Andy, that is one of the single biggest things that has made the product team and the engineering team get happier with each other because the engineers see, Oh, this is being used, not, not, I just did all this work and I got to redesign it. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think that the, the, the lean thinking,
0: you know, and the phrase that's always struck with me is, you know, fake it. You put fake features in there to get out. Um, I know that they're not fake. That's a real GUI you're looking at, but there's no real code behind it. And just test it and then come back and, and know that what you're developing is actually what the market wants. Yeah. While we're talking about, um, you know, user experience, let's, let's just talk a little bit more about the product. So there's cameras, there's a console on wheels and there's a big GUI in the operating room and you can move it close, as close, I guess, as you want. And, and there's like sort of a, uh, forgive me, a dental sort of gantry to move the, the camera closer and it kind of auto focuses and everything. And um, I guess are, are those gantries are they? Can they be re- controlled remotely, or is that just a manual uh, move?
1: It, it's a manual, very, very uh, well built, well engineered uh, custom boom arm that we've got. Um, so, so let me kind of step back and kind of describe that console thing, right? It it does sit in the procedure room. It's a it's a piece of custom built hardware and software. It's got two cameras. It's got custom audio. Uh, it's got a big display screen. Um, it's got a local computer. It's got a secure connection to, uh, our cloud. It is on wheels and it's got this big boom arm. Now, everything on this has been custom designed for this, uh, for this use case, right. To run in the, uh, in the operating room. So for instance, these aren't just simple cheap cameras. These are, uh, high definition pan tilt zoom cameras with a 30 times optical zoom. Right. It's not talking digital zoom here, right? We're talking optical zoom. So you get wonderful crystal clear pictures from these things. Um, and that PTZ part, that's what's remotely controlled. So think of your camera, your camera in, in the housing, and the person who's remote gets to choose where the camera is focused, how it's zoomed in or zoomed out, uh, etc. So that's that's one part of it. Audio is actually when you when you talk about you know what have we learned over time and what data did we have we had to do a lot to improve our audio we have a we have a at the heart of it the the hardware is, is pretty awesome we've got a custom built mic array um and a speaker system which is designed to handle what i what i call the hostile environment of an operating room <laughs> okay you know especially if you think of like an orthopedic uh case there can be uh beeps from monitors there can be trays crashing there can be instruments doing things there can be Buzz saws, what have you? Uh, so it can be a really hostile environment, and we've got to be able to pick up the physician's voice. Audio is an area where we had to learn, and so we had to. We did a lot of cases where we got permission to record the audio in the room, and we took that back and we figured out how we could get better. Uh, so that was a, a really strong iterative process, such that right now I think we've we've got some amazing audio and some intellectual property around it. It uses a variety of technologies, both from kind of your your, your traditional audio uh, DSP, digital signal processing and filtering, but also some machine learning algorithms behind it for custom noise reduction, right? So that's that's part of it. Um, you know, the, the boom arm is really cool. I love the boom arm. We custom built that with a partner company. We went to a specialist company to help us design and build... Um, something that is, uh, unique to our, our product, but there are specialists in this space. Like they, they do a lot of those gantry arms, those boom arms for the medical space. And so it's heavy, it's smooth, it's beautiful. It's robust. I love that thing. Um, and, uh, I, I think the challenge though, is it's heavy, <laughs> like it, it's, it's easy to move, right? It's nice. It's beautifully balanced, but it it creates an interesting moment arm for the entire console. And so that took some design work to ensure that that was not a problem.
0: Yeah. So um, we talked about the the user feedback on on easy to change things like like the GUI. And so I know I know you've got I assume you have fielded platforms now like on the market you're selling you're getting revenue. Um, you know how do you uh, determine what what um, you know additional features you might want to make uh, or add to this platform? You mentioned two cameras and obviously there's there's a feed I think I saw in the back for other inputs, um, you know endoscopes or whatnot um, but but where does it end <laughs> you know with with this sort of telepresence you know kind of
1: robot sort of thing you yeah, avatar <laughs> Where does it end? Uh, this is what I love about technology it doesn't. The current version of our product uh, we call it the Gen two or the a c two hundred that 's the console in the operating room. There's a little bit of creative fiction in calling it Gen 2, because it's actually the fifth iteration. Um, I wasn't around for iterations 1, 2, and 3. Uh, but I, I have been here for, for 4 and 5, which we call Gen 1, 5, and, and Gen 2. And so a lot of that was learning with those early use cases to what makes the most sense. There will be a platform beyond the Gen 2. Uh, not going to talk any any details about it, but uh, there will there will absolutely be something because we are in a constantly iterating field. Um, a lot of what is needed though right now is is features on the software side. And you asked, you know, how do you figure out what to do? That is a classical product management question. So I feel I'm actually allowed to answer that. Uh, not just take the engineering side, you know, and, and that is you got to go out and listen to your customers. And You also have to filter what you hear from your customers to understand what is the root problem that we're trying to solve. So that process has what is what has led us to kind of the current uh, incarnation that we have. It, it led us to spend a lot of time on audio as I mentioned. We also generate a lot of data you know, got to go back to the to the title of the podcast, right? We generate a lot of data ourselves that we monitor. So one of the most important things, to cycle back to something you asked at the beginning, what happens if things go down or go wrong? Like we have a communications platform. We've all used Zoom or Teams or uh, whatever, whatever, pick your favorite collaboration platform. What happens when they go down? Well, you got to make sure they don't. You gotta be reliable. So we generate a lot of data ourselves and we, we spend a lot of time consuming our log data. We're big fans of Splunk. Throw everything we possibly can into Splunk at some point. That's gonna cost me a lot of money with Splunk, but right now uh, it's, it's manageable. And so we can do a lot of analysis on the, on the data we get there to figure out what people are using and to figure out as well, are we having any, any potential problems that we can get in front of? I'm not familiar with Splunk, James. What is Splunk? Um, Splunk is a great data
0: data management tool this episode is not sponsored by Splunk by the way
1: <laughs> yeah and, and so I'll, I'll keep it very short there there are a number of uh, data platforms where you can throw data and it can help you uh, analyze it you can slice and dice it and show it in different ways and visualize it so it's a it's a combination of an analysis tool and a data visualization tool altogether um, so it's just great for that. A lot of people in, in the traditional tech world use it for analyzing, you know, what's going on in your software application.
0: Buzzword here, cybersecurity. We know it's big in, in the tech world and, and in your prior life. Just how have you, if if I may, how have you made sure that, you know, this platform is cyber secure? Like, what did you put in place?
1: That is an area where I've gotten increasingly paranoid since I've got here. So, so let, let, let's... Let's start with some facts uh, or, or at least some data points. Um, uh, one of the security companies out there that provides uh, provides tools is, is called Checkpoint. And I was reading one of their um, reports that just came out late last week from Checkpoint. And it was basically analyzing um, cyber attacks by week, by industry from 2022, uh, specifically kind of the change in 2022 over 2021. healthcare had the largest percentage increase of any other industry. It was a 75% increase in weekly cyber attacks per organization in 2022 over 2021. Healthcare is increasingly the target of choice of bad actors. Scares the crap out of me. We have to get in front of that. Um, By the way, healthcare is now the third by industry in terms of total number of attacks per week. And it's third Number one is, I think it's uh, education and research, and the number two is like government and military. I could have one and two uh, uh, reverse, but healthcare is above the financial industry. It's above the communications industry. It's beca- above ISPs. It's a, you take your pick. It's, we are a target. So we have, to, we have to get in front of that. And so one of the things that I have pushed internally with the team You know, there's been a buzzword for years, mostly around quality of this thing called a software development lifecycle, an SDLC. And you should follow an SDLC. You should publish it. You shouldn't just write code randomly, but you should have a structured process, and that's going to allow you to turn out higher quality code. Well, over the past two years, that's really morphed. And if you look at some of the guidance from the government and from others, it's more from you should have an SDLC to no, 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 no. You need a secure software development lifecycle, an SSDL. And so we've, we've been internalizing that here at Avail, right? Because it's not about testing your product after you've done it. That is too late. You've got to internalize security right up front, and you got to think about the different vectors of attack. And so that, that's one of the things that we have been uh, strong advocates of and can always do more of. Like security is, a, is an area where there's always more to do. So that, that's a mentality shift.
0: Yeah, James, you're probably one of the, Avail is one of the bigger sort of startup companies that that we've had on the podcast. i curious, like what your team looks like from a cybersecurity cyber perspective. Do you have, you know, an in-house sort of cyber team or do you outsource um, for that expertise and monitoring, you know, these platforms that are on the market? How are you, how are you designing your team?
1: Uh, yes and yes. So we have people within the team that are, you know, nominated to look at Cybersecurity and that are part of our, our cybersecurity stance. Um, we do absolutely employ outside um, outside expertise because as a startup, you can never have it all in house, and um, and so we've we've employed various different different folks. We've also implemented a a security platform that implements continuous monitoring. So there's there's kind of two parts to this, right? There's the development of the platform. And there's the security of the organization. right? That's kind of the way I look at it. So the development of the platform, that's been a lot of education to the engineers about, you know, here's design patterns to avoid. Here's the OWASP top 10, don't do them, right? Constant training on that. Here are the tools we're going to work through to constantly test our code at very early stages to make sure we don't have vulnerabilities and we're not introducing vulnerabilities, especially through third-party libraries. That's a, it's a particularly nasty uh, source of, of vulnerability. Um, so that that's kind of the development side. And then on the on the regular process or organizational side of things, we uh went and we partnered with uh we we bought some some services that allow that are constantly monitoring our our environment and they're monitoring our development environments and they're monitoring our organization, et cetera. So, you know, as a startup, we get to use a lot of the latest technology. So we have for instance, we don't have any servers in-house, right? Everything we use is a software as a service or cloud host, right? Everyone's got their own personal laptop, but that, that's about it. And so that actually makes security of the organization a little bit cleaner. We don't have some of the problems that legacy organizations have because I don't have to maintain server firms that I have to keep patched. Amazon handles that for me. Thank you, Amazon. So we we can streamline things that way, but it's... uh we got to think both about the product and the way we develop it and about the organization and the processes behind that. All
0: right, James, we're getting towards the end of our time here. It's time for me to start asking the tough questions. So I, your product is two cameras on a console in an operating room. And like, I don't know what, what I I could buy two cameras and put it on a console and call myself a startup and make it for half the price of yours. I'm just curious, like what your moat is as a company, and I think I know the answer. But I, you know, I think I want to hear from you, like how Avail can really, you know, have that moat um, that's so critical um, for for
1: products that um, you know that are in this space. There, there's an answer today, and then there's an answer tomorrow. So let's start with today. Um, today, we're the best damn platform that's out there, and I can say that confidently because I've heard it from our customers uh, who have said. We use your platform, it works. It works every time. The quality of the audio and the video that you're transmitting is awesome, right? And there are some other people in this space and that is not said about them. So the, the, the answer is we have built a custom system to integrate everything together um, to make sure we have the best experience for our users, and then we've spent a lot of time to make it intuitive and easy to use, so it's not just a hack together user experience, right? It, uh, it's it's intuitive. It looks similar to some of the other collaboration platforms, you know, like a Zoom or a, a but but yet it is optimized for use in the surgical environment, et cetera. So. Um, so I'm I'm comfortable that we have the best platform and that it's not as trivial a problem to just stick a couple of cameras on a stick. You got to find the right cameras to begin with. Not everything out there has a 30 time optical zoom. That big boom arm I mentioned, like there's there is physical engineering that goes into the into the hardware of this, and and then you've got to package it all up in a way that a hospital is going to accept, right? So go back to that security point you're talking about. I have spent a, a bunch of time talking to. Uh, hospital IT security teams about exactly what we're doing and why we're secure, and getting external certifications of that so that they will deploy us. If you just come in as James's hardware co, you know James's software co, whatever, they're not going to accept it. So, so a lot of that validation has come through, and, and I'm comfortable with that. But get to where we're going. The future is not just surgical telepresence, right? What we are enabling is really stretching into the digitization of the operating room which has been a buzz phrase for a few years what does that mean so what does it mean um how can we bring more and more digital techniques into the operating room how can we enable more and more collaboration there uh, i'll give you some examples there are a there's a ton of work going on by people smarter far smarter than i am um in the artificial, we have some of them too, but uh, in the artificial intelligence, the machine learning space, to do cool stuff based on data, learn things from images, propose things, propose new uh, uh, potential therapies, to guide physicians um, before, during, and after a procedure. One of the challenges for all of these folks, very heavily in the software space, um, and one of the challenges for all of these folks is, is a couplefold: How do I for all this new technology, how do I get into the operating room? I need a host I need something to run on and then how do I get access to the imagery that I need to actually run this really cool uh, ml model that I've built that is you know so unique because I've trained it on some data that no one else has and but I, I I need to get access to the imagery so we have a platform that today is capturing all the imagery in in the the appropriate surgery. We have a compute platform. We have a secure connection to the the cloud. So if you want to run something locally in the operating room, if you want to run something in the cloud, because it's a really big workload, we're a platform to do that. And in fact, back in October, we announced our first partnership. Um, We didn't announce who it was. We said it's coming. And we will deliver that in the first quarter. And I'm happy to say we're on track to show our first third-party software integration with the Avail platform that shows not only are we transmitting voice and video and your scopes, we're also able to give someone a platform to bring their software expertise into the operating room and collaborate on top of the Avail platform. So that's the next mode. And that's at its simplest, something like take an image of a,
0: an organ, you know, just at its simplest and you know, run it through the ML algorithm to say, this is, you need to, you know, intervene in this manner versus another manner, right? That's kind of what, what you're, you're talking about.
1: It it could be that. Absolutely. It could be something else. It could be uh, a process tool that helps a physician or a surgical staff do different things or keep track of different things. So I, I think the point is, we don't know, and we're certainly not going to be able to develop as a startup. And even as we become super successful, we're not going to be able to develop everything. Some of the background I have, though, is, and I, I did this last at TiVo, is we we turned TiVo from a cable box into a streaming platform, um, and we enabled the you know the streaming apps to deploy on our latest streamer device, and and that's an example of what we're doing is we're building a platform. That others can deploy technology onto applications, software, uh, models. It depends on what, you know what they're trying to do, and we're going to make sure that there's a way for that to surface appropriately. So we're turning ourselves into that into that software platform that is uh, is going to help move forward this concept of digitizing the operating room, and that's our contribution to it.
0: The consumerization of healthcare. And you know just uh, the speed to getting these products on the market, and you don't always have a perfect moat. It's a matter of like, roll, like you were saying, kind of at the top, roll out as many new features as you can. Listen to your user. Just just keep proceeding forward and be opportunistic with your partnerships um, where they kind of fit your business model, and you'll you'll be successful. So you use the term platform. I think it's I think that's a great product to launch. You know, also you know, just to kind of close out here. Uh, you know, the beauty of your product is you're not just narrowly looking at one little laparoscopic procedure, right? It's, it's a platform that can be used in so many different ways. It's a wonderful business to have, um, you have know, that flexibility. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, medical education, uh, advising surgeons as they're doing procedures. And then from, from where keytech sits, like helping inform developers learn about how their products are being used in development and on the market. And, and, and reducing the amount of time it takes for these products to get to market. So, you know, James, seems
1: like it's still early days over there at Avail. So I'm excited to tune in. Absolutely still early days. But it, it's exciting because we're starting to see, you know, the, the vision that Daniel had, we're starting to see it really come to life.
0: Well, James, uh, and, and everyone, thanks for tuning in to uh, MedTech Speed to Data, episode 23. Uh, until next time, thanks again, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.